Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to continue our lung cancer discussions talking about the controversial and somewhat of a mess topic of stage 3 lung cancer. We may sound a bit different this episode. We are recording from our new studio of Talking About Tumors. Ryan's are in the suburbs. Yeah, definitely interesting times. Although I do miss the horns honking and people yelling in the background of our episodes. So getting into it, stage 3 lung cancer is a very heterogeneous group, which makes interpreting these trials and coming up with treatment strategies particularly challenging. All of these patients pretty much will be discussed at Tumor Board because this is a very multidisciplinary field, so we definitely want to involve our radiation oncology and thoracic surgery colleagues. Yeah, stage 3 is a sort of like a gray zone cancer where over the years the staging criteria has changed and the definitions of what is surgically resectable and what isn't has changed. This has led to stage 3 being being in adjuvant clinical trials and metastatic trials, and, and really there hasn't been a linked continuous definition of this disease over the years. And when we see a patient in front of us in clinic, we're left to try to make our best interpretation of the data present and try to see which stage three syndrome our, our patient may match with the previous trials out there. And when, as we had discussed with our rectal cancer studies, a lot of this data overlaps surgical, radiation, chemotherapy approaches. Once again, we're taking three different specialties, trying to get them to partner up and decide what's the best way to treat one thing. And often those opinions are going to change from center to center, from year to year. Yeah, so even though this is less common, about a third of patients with non-small cell lung cancer will have stage 3 disease. So you'll definitely come across this. And depending on where you practice, certain centers have kind of their own different ways of dealing with this. Traditionally, the outcomes with stage 3 lung cancer have been poor, with five-year overall survival being only 15%. Now, there have been some improvements to this, as we'll get to, but again, the outcomes are still pretty poor for these stage 3 patients, even those that undergo surgery. Yeah, there's definitely been tangible improvements in overall survival, and we are um, aiming for cure in many of these patients, um, although that chance is low. With proper patient selection and um, aggressive treatment, we can increase the, the rate of cure in these patients. So what exactly is stage 3 lung cancer? So if you remember, the staging has recently changed from the 7th edition staging system to the 8th edition. Stage 3 is broken up into three categories, stage 3A, stage 3B, and stage 3C. And in general, any patient with N2 or N3 disease, so N2 being ipsilateral mediastinal or subcarinal lymph nodes, and N3 being contralateral mediastinal, contralateral hyalur, scalene, or supraclavicular lymph nodes, any of these patients will be classified as stage 3. Additionally, anybody with a, a T4 disease, which is greater than 7 centimeters, or or with satellite nodules, or any tumor that's invading the diaphragm, the heart, mediastinum, any of the great vessels, trachea, recurrent laryngeal nerve, esophagus, vertebral body, or carina. So I know that's a lot, but anything that's kind of invading a very important structure would be considered T4. So getting getting into stage 3A, so anybody with T3 N1 disease, so a tumor greater than 5 centimeters with N1 disease, which is hyalur intrapulmonary peribronchial lymph nodes, can also be T4 N0, so anything greater than 7 centimeters or invading a structure like we just said, T4 N1, and T1 or T2 N2. So T3 N1, T4 N0, T4 N1, or T1 to 2 N2. 
So just looking at just stage 3A alone, we're already looking at a very heterogeneous group of tumors. We have moderate-sized T3 tumors with a single hilar node or a couple hilar nodes, ranging into tumors that are greater than 7 centimeters, tumors that are invading into great vessels, tumors that are involving multiple lobes on the same side. Um, and in addition, in, among all these um, variations just mentioned, we also have smaller tumors, so tumors less than 5 centimeters, involving um, the ipsilateral mediastinal lymph nodes, which are a wide variety of tumors, and this is just in the stage 3a. Now, of the tumors that are stage 3 that are considered resectable, they usually fit into the stage 3a category with stage 3b and stage 3c, with a less chance of that they're resectable, which we'll get to. With the one caveat being that traditionally T4 and mediastinal lymph nodes have been thought to be usually unresectable. And for stage 3B, this would be T1 to 2 and 3 disease or anyone with T3 or T4 and 2 disease. And again, N3 would be lymph node involvement in the contralateral mediastinal, contralateral hilar, scalene, or supraclavicular lymph nodes. And lastly, we have the stage 3C tumors, which are primarily those with contralateral or supraclavicular lymph nodes, specifically those that are T3 to 4. So you can have an N3 tumor if it's a T2 or less, but T3 to T4 with N3, that's going to be stage 3C, so our, our worst actors. Overall prognosis is proportional to staging, and the best likely chance of cure are going to be seen in our stage 3A tumors. One important thing to note is that sometimes you'll see a patient, especially patients that are heavy smokers that have two separate nodules in different lungs, and you're tempted to think, oh, this is metastatic disease, this is unresectable. Many times, this could just be a second pack second primary lung cancer. You know, these patients have a lot of risk factors for the development of lung cancer. So a lot of times we'll treat these aggressively as two separate lung cancers, and there can be favorable outcomes associated with this. And for um, separate lung nodules in the ipsilateral lung, in a a separate lobe, that's going to be fall under what the new AJCC um, eighth criteria is a T4 tumor. Remembering that if it's within the same lobe, that's going to be T3. But in the contralateral lung, this is by definition M1, unless we were to think that's possibly a second primary tumor. We're going to be bringing these to our multidisciplinary tumor boards. It's really valuable to get insights from lung radiologists and lung surgeons who treat these to determine whether or not our stage 3 tumor is going to be amenable to surgical resection. In stage 3B and 3C, typically we're going to consider no, with some very small exceptions. And in stage 3A, we have kind of run the gamut between tumors such as T3N1, which, assuming the primary tumor isn't in a difficult-to-reach area, more likely than not will be amenable to surgical resection if the patient is a good candidate. To T4s or N2s, well, these still can fall into stage 3A, but may not be resectable. And um, you'll see in some of the trials that they'll say stage 3A determined unresectable. And, and it really comes down case by case, surgeon by surgeon. And there is has been shown to be a wide variability in approach between centers, between countries. So this also brings up that mediastinal staging, as we've said previously, is extremely important in these patients and in anyone that's considering surgery, because if you do have N2 disease found on the mediastinal staging, that would most likely make them not a candidate for surgery. So one scenario that does come up are patients that are initially thought to have stage 1 and 2 disease that undergo surgical resection and are after surgery are found to have stage 3 disease on the pathology specimen. Now, as we've said in the last episode, these patients, you know, given that they've already have surgery, are treated with adjuvant chemotherapy, typically a platinum doublet, such as cisplatin, pemetrexid for 
non-squamous cancers or cisplatin, paclitaxel for squamous cancers. And then those who are EGFR positive, given the discussion around osimertinib, may consider um, osimertinib for up to three years following that. And in these patients, adjuvant radiation is still pretty controversial. There have been studies kind of in support of this and against this. Some would consider it if you have positive margins after the surgery, but this is not universally recommended. And as we discussed in our adjuvant, new adjuvant trial, in general, a lot of interest has been moving towards giving new adjuvant to patients who would be giving adjuvant chemotherapy to anyhow with the incorporation of immunotherapy and um, certain subsects of patients. For those with N2 disease or larger, bulkier primary tumors, one thing we will not discuss in great detail today but remains an area of interest and certainly is practice in, in certain uh, cancer centers is to proceed with an induction approach, whether this be induction chemotherapy or induction um, chemotherapy combined with radiation to try to convert that tumor into a surgically receptible lung nodule. However, the high-quality data for an induction approach to convert an unresectable tumor to resectable tumor is, is pretty limited and really should be used in very, very rare cases and will, will v- certainly vary based upon local cancer centers, surgical expertise, opinions, and hopefully higher quality data down the road. As we don't have much data to discuss around and this really falls more into a surgical approach, we'll, we'll just focus on kind of the more standard of care approaches today, which outside of those that are surgically resectable is going to be with uh, concurrent chemo radiation. So for most tumors that are deemed unresectable for stage 3, the current standard of care is definitive concurrent chemoradiation. Prior to the 1990s, we had, um, the approach to these patients was to give definitive radiation on its own. As the efficacy of cisplatin doublets came to r- the rise in the early 1990s, a paper published by Dr. Dillman and colleagues in the New England Journal showed that the addition to chemotherapy to radiation did improve overall survival. Um, Just as a brief note about radiation, there's been various regimens, schedules, and advances in this therapy using things such as IMRT, intensity modulated radiation therapy. These are all actually good topics to discuss around, maybe not necessarily so board relevant, but relevant to our tumor board discussions. And at some point, we certainly would appreciate having a radiation oncologist coming in and introducing some of these topics and advances in their field uh, for medical oncologists. Currently, the standard would be um, using around 60 gray, which is usually administered over about six weeks of uh, radiation. In this paper by Dr. Dillman Calmes, they compared this this definitive radiation dose um, to either cisplatin and vinblastine, um, given as a doublet for a total of two cycles, followed by radiation. So this was not concurrent, but sequential chemotherapy followed by radiation. Um, This was a one-to-one randomization. The primary outcome was overall survival, and they did meet their primary outcome. Median overall survival for the chemotherapy followed by radiation group was 14 months versus 10 months for the radiation alone group. This translated into long-term survival, and um, um, which would indicate increased chance of cure. And at five years, 17% of patients were alive with the chemotherapy followed by radiation versus 6% with radiation alone, both indicating significant improvements in outcomes in these patients, but also how dismal prognosis that unresectable stage 3 lung cancer has. 
In terms of the schedule for chemoradiation, there have been studies looking at either sequential chemotherapy followed by radiation versus concurrent chemoradiation. And it has been shown that there is increased overall survival with the concurrent approach rather than the sequential. This is mainly due to an increase in local regional control rather than um, distant relapse. Furthermore, if concurrent chemotherapy is given at the time of radiation, um, there's no need for induction chemotherapy. So there was a study that looked at chemotherapy followed by concurrent chemorads versus chemorads alone, and those appeared to be equivalent. Now, which chemotherapy do you choose? There's a few different regimens that have all been studied in the past. The most common regimens used today are cisplatin atopicide, cisplatin pemetrexid for non-squamous cancers, as well as a weekly carboplatin paclitaxel regimen. The cisplatin atopicide and carboplatin paclitaxel regimens have been the most studied. Um, these are given in different uh, schedules. So cisplatin in the cisatopicide regimen is given as 50 milligrams on day 1, day 8, day 29, day 36 whereas the topicide is given on day 1 to 5 and day 29 to 33. This is a chemotherapy that's usually given in 3 to 5 days in a row, in this case 5 days in a row. Uh, the carboplatin paclitaxel um, is given once a week, and this is a low-dose regimen. So carboplatin is given as a area under the curve of 2, and paclitaxel at 45 milligrams per meter squared. This is given for the total of four, 6 weeks of radiation. And due to the lower dose of chemotherapies being used here, this has been thought to be um, not a definitive chemotherapy regimen on its own and should be followed by a consolidative two cycles of carboplatin with an area under the curve of six and paclitaxel with 200 milligrams per meter squared. This consolidative component is important to take into account because when we look at one of the major studies that compared cisplatin and topicide to carboplatin and paclitaxel, they did not include this consolidative component, which has led to ongoing discussion about which regimen is better. This comparative trial um, did find that the three-year overall survival was numerically improved with cisplatin atopicide at 41% versus 26%. These are actually quite high estimates of overall survival um, for this population, probably reflects some statistical chance given um, the relatively small trial that looked at this. Certainly, the opinions on which regimen to use may vary, and um, I would say the evidence for cisplatin topicide does appear a bit stronger. Um, however, carboplatin paclitaxel weekly is tolerable, and it may be truly similar if we give the extra two cycles following chemorads. The caveat is these extra two consolidative cycles does take up extra time and may delay our start of immunotherapy which we'll get to in a moment, which has become the standard of care for our responding patients. Cispemetrexid, as we've previously mentioned, pemetrexid is the um, most recent chemotherapy to enter the lung cancer space and do that. There's really a, a more recent study that had looked at this in the concurrent chemoradiation setting. Um, this is a study that compared cisatopicide to cisplatin and pemetrexid. In this study, both arms did have a consolidative period. In the case of cisplatin and pemetrexid, it was four cycles of pemetrexid, and there was also um, two cycles of cisplatin atopicide administered. This trial actually ended early for futility. Um, it was um, designed to show superiority of cisplatin and pemetrexid over cisplatin atopicide. did not show that. The hazard ratio was 1.0. Um, Two-year overall survival is about the same. Although this was not a non-inferiority study, and it was generally small, it does appear that there does seem to be some equivalence of these two arms. Once again, with the question of 
um, once again with the limitation that we really would need to give maintenance pemetrexid to match up to this trial protocol, and that again delays the time to starting immune therapy. You'll likely see either one of these three regimens being used where you train. There is evidence to support using other cisplatin doublets, although these studies are generally smaller. And to my knowledge, there's no strong evidence to support a non-cisplatin or non-doublet um, concurrent chemoradiation therapy regimen. So as with many other cancers, immunotherapy has made its way into the adjuvant space for non-small cell lung cancer, stage 3. The overall survival, as we've said, with traditional therapy for stage 3 has still been pretty poor, with a 5-year overall survival of about 15%. So the thought was, can we add immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting, and will this help improve long-term outcomes? This was studied in the Pacific trial with Dervalumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, for one year after definitive chemoradiation with a cisplatin doublet. So this trial enrolled approximately 700 patients. All of these patients had received at least two cycles of a platinum doublet chemotherapy with either atopicide, vinorelbine, pemetrexid, vinblastine, or taxane, and radiation 54 to 66 gray. They couldn't have had progression of disease after definitive chemoradiation. They all had to be ECOG 0 to 1, greater than 18 years old, and have had a life expectancy greater than 12 weeks and all of the patients had to be considered unresectable. These patients were randomized after the completion of chemoradiation in a two-to-one fashion to Dervalumab 10 milligrams per kilograms every two weeks for one year versus placebo. And it was stratified by age, so greater than 65 or less than 65, sex, smoke, or smoking history. There were two primary outcomes, progression-free survival and overall survival. And the secondary outcomes were the percent of patients alive and without disease progression at 12 months and at 18 months, overall response rate, duration of response, time to death or distant metastasis at two years, uh, safety and health-related quality of life endpoints. An important thing to note about this study is that they did not require the patients to have any pdl one testing, although in this study they did have the option to send pdl one testing um, centrally for testing just as an explorer outcome. Uh, they didn't they also did not mandate testing for EGFR and did include patients with EGFR mutations and they split their alpha 50%. So 2.5 of their 5% of alpha was allocated to the progression free survival looking for a hazard ratio of 0.67 and uh, the other part of the alpha went to um, overall survival which they powered for 85% to look at a hazard ratio of 0.73. Total of uh, 700 patients were randomized, 473 to the Dervalumab arm, uh, 236 to the placebo arm. The average age was 64. These were mostly men, as is typical with most lung cancer trials. Uh, 50% of these patients were stage 3A, and 50% were non-squamous. Most of these patients were listed as former smokers, 70% in fact. EGFR was unknown in um, many of the patients, 132 of the 400 Dervalumab arm patients, it was unknown. 58 of the 236 placebo arms, it was unknown. It was only positive in 29 in Dervalumab and 14 of the patient uh, placebo patients, respectively. So of the patients who EGFR testing was available, very few were in fact positive. The initial study only reported PDL1 is positive by greater than 25% or less than 25%. The study was first published in the New England Journal of Medicine at 14.5 months follow-up, and at that time, the progression-free survival in the Dervalumab arm was 16.8 months versus 5.6 months in the control arm for a hazard ratio of 0.52. The 12-month PFS was 
35.9% versus 35.3%. So they had met their primary endpoint of progression-free survival. A follow-up study was published reporting the overall survival, which was 48 months for the devalumab arm versus 29 months for the control arm. And five-year overall survival was 43% versus 33%. So even the control arm, you know, as we said previously, the five-year overall survival for stage three had been around 15%. So we have made some headway. Even the control group was 33%, but the trivalumab arm was improved at 43%. It's important to keep in mind that these are patients who responded to initial chemotherapy and radiation. So these are better overall outcomes than what we've seen previously, but this is a selected population. When we look at chemo radiation, we're looking at about 50% response rate. So these are the 50% people who made it through chemo radiation and were able to make it further. Part of why the control arm did well compared to the outcomes in the chemo rest trials. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. The EGFR population, um, as I mentioned, is very small. However, it is worth noting that when we look at that subgroup, they did not have a significant difference. This may be just due to purely low power, but given the outcomes in metastatic disease and the poor response to EGFR, this has led to ongoing questions of whether or not patients who are EGFR positive are PDL1 inhibitor sensitive. One thing that we mentioned during a previous discussion is immune checkpoint inhibitor followed by an anti-EGFR agent um, increases the chance of immune-related adverse events. If a person is to progress while receiving Dervalumab, you're going to have to wait about a two to three month washout prior to starting your anti-EGFR agent. And there are ongoing trials of looking at, in this consolidative setting, just going straight to an EGFR agent, and hopefully those data will report out in the next year. Looking at toxicity, 25% of patients in the zervalumab arm reported immune-related adverse events versus 8.1% in the control arm. When looking at the more serious toxicities, such as grade 3 or greater, it was 3.4% in the zervalumab arm versus 2.6% in the control arm, so not too much of an increase in toxicity. One of the major concerns when this trial came out was whether or not there'd be a high risk of pneumonitis. Um, mainly because immune therapy was known to cause pneumonitis, and it's also a side effect of radiation. It was, in fact, increased from 34 versus 25%, but grade 3 events were relatively rare. It did not seem like Dervalumab following the completion of radiation led to significantly greater um, radiation than we would have expected otherwise. So due to the study, it is standard of care currently for patients with unresectable stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer to receive chemo radiation with a cisplatin or carboplatin doublet followed by Dervalumab for one year. Because we spent so much time on this topic during our discussion around Adora, I would like to point out the post-progression therapy. And in the case of these patients, 50% in the Dervalumab arm and 60% in the control arm did get subsequent therapy. Of the control arm, only 30% did eventually get immune checkpoint inhibitors, which might be lower than what we expect. However, it is worth noticing that um, 15% did get uh, TKI, so it's possible these may have been ALK positive, EGFR positive, and 25% at some point received radiation. So we have to also account for the fact that some might have had illegal progression or a single metastatic spread. So maybe a bit lower than what we expect overall, but still not, not dismal when you're talking about patients with stage 3 disease, many who progress and will not be able to be candidates for therapy whatsoever. As with EGFR, another question, of course, is for the PDL1 negative. I did mention that the initial um, publication showed PDL1 greater than 25 or less than 25 at the follow-up publications. Um, they did include the less than 1% population. This is very small group because most of it wasn't reported altogether, um, did not seem to benefit. Um, as with EGFR, the PDL1 negative group probably are not getting a huge benefit from this therapy, but it is still approved for all comers um, who've received response 
to initial concurrent chemo radiation. Another question that remains are in the patients who got a carbotaxol or maybe cisplatin pemetrexid, do they need consolidation? And then dervalumab, this wasn't really clearly um, shown to be needed prior to inclusion in the Pacific trial. And I think you'll, I would expect to see various uh, approaches depending on where you practice. And one final thing before we make into bottom lines, although not clearly shown in the Pacific trial, just clearly shown in data altogether. We mentioned this during the metastatic setting, but patients who get lung cancer who stop smoking do better. This has been shown in metastatic and stage three and in adjuvant trials, both because it, it increases the efficacy of your chemotherapy. It potentially increases the efficacy of immunotherapy. Those studies are still new, but it seems promising and reduces the chance of a second primary. So if you are in seeing a patient with, who is smoking, who has stage three stage four lung cancer, maybe not the time of their diagnosis there to drive the point home, but something to bring up and continue to discuss through the course of their therapy. You know, as important as these new drugs bringing out moderate improvement in care um, are things that patients can do for themselves. Yeah, I have a lot of patients who feel like, oh, well, I already had lung cancer. What's the point of quitting? But it's definitely important to, you know, explain that quitting now will still help. All right. So on that note, we'll get to our bottom lines. So one, stage three lung cancer is an extremely heterogeneous group of patients and a very almost controversial topic that could be, that is treated differently in many different centers and pretty much always warrants a tumor board discussion because this is a very multidisciplinary effort. Yes. And just a reminder, stage three includes any patient that is T3 and one, any patient with T4, or any patient that is N2 or N3. Evidence is merging for those that can receive neoadjuvant, adjuvant, and better define those who are candidates for surgery. However, the bottom line is, with the, with the exception of the small subgroup of stage 3a that are clearly resectable, most of these patients will be unresectable, and the standard of care would be a um, chemoradiation regimen. Currently, the approach to concurrent chemoradiation is to omit an induction cycles as not shown to be superior to chemoradiation alone, and your options that have the best evidence behind them are cisplatin etoposide, carboplatin, and paclitaxel keeping in mind that after your concurrent chemoradiation regimen, you're going to have two more cycles of a higher dose of carboplatin and paclitaxel. And more recently, with decent evidence to support it, is a combination of cisplatin and pemetrexid, which has also been studied primarily with a maintenance arm or consolidative regimen of pemetrexid. Unclear how needed that is. These are all given with somewhere between 54 and 66 grays of radiation, um, which is typically administered as weekdays for six weeks straight. Definitive chemoradiation with consolidative dervalumab for one year was demonstrated to have both progression-free survival and overall survival benefit in the Pacific trial, with a five-year overall survival of 43% in the dervalumab arm. This would be given to almost all patients that respond to the initial chemoradiation regimen. Uh, question, of course, is for those who are PD-1 negative, are they going to benefit um, on clear at this time, and those who are EGFR positive, possibly some evidence to consider to not give this. We've come a long way from the 6% overall survival with radiation alone in these patients, possibly because of better staging and patient selection, but certainly a component of this is due to our better trial regimens, and hopefully we'll continue to see that progress happening as the years go on. So on that note, hopefully everyone has a good night, and enjoy what's left of the summer, and happy Labor Day. Bye for now. Take care. For more information, follow us on Twitter at Talking Tumors, or feel free to email us at talkingabouttumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. 
And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.